if you are there, uh, would you read with me? It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And that is the way, the, the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the, your word this morning, Lord. I pray that as we look at your word, that it would be you that speaks to our hearts, Lord. I pray, Father, that if there is anything that I say that does not align to the truth of the gospel, Father, I pray that it would fold down and be forgotten. Lord, I pray for this church, that they would have uh, the ability, Lord, uh, to see what comes from you and what doesn't, Lord. Uh, I pray that you will be magnified, Father, you will be glorified in this meeting, and that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts. In the name of your Son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Um, As you can tell from uh, what I'm going to call my exotic accent, uh, and for the fact that I just butchered the passage I read, um, (laughs) I was not born in the U.S. I was born in Guatemala. I was born and raised in Guatemala. And uh, though I became an American citizen only uh, maybe a month and a half ago, uh, thank you, thank you. (laughs) It was hard. (laughs) Uh, and though I just became an American citizen, there are some things that still blow my mind about life in the U.S. Now, these may be things that you are, you know, used to. These may be things that uh, that you don't think are weird, uh, but they are. And so let me share a couple of those things. The first thing uh, that makes me say, God bless America, is the portion sizes at restaurants. What a gift that is. Seriously, like you could feed an entire family like from, you know, just ordering one plate. I love it, as you can tell. Um, Another thing that is not common in other places is what I call the common grace of refills. Free refills at restaurants are not the rule anywhere else. In Guatemala, when I go there and visit now, uh, I go to a restaurant and I order a Coke and they literally bring me a Coke. They bring you a can of Coke, a glass with ice, and then you have to budget how much you're going to drink through your meal, unless you want to pay for a second Coke. Here, you get a Coke, and it's like 44 ounces with the perfect ice, and then you can have as many as you want, and then when you leave, you can get one to go. It's insane. I love it. Uh, (laughs) Something else I love about the U.S. is Amazon Prime, right? Amazon Prime is the best. I'm from Guatemala. Like I said, I lived in Malaysia. We never had Amazon Prime. I had to wait to come visit to the, you know, the U.S. to get all my Amazon stuff. And now it gets to my house within hours. I love it. There's another thing that's uniquely American that I think is kind of weird. So please don't be offended. What is up with opening presents in front of the people that gave you the presents at a party? That's just weird. It's happened to me so many times that, you know, I'm already insecure of the gift I'm re-gifting you. Um, and then your child opens it up in front of me and like they just shake their head like I already have this one. It's weird. Just take it home and open it in there, right? I don't need to know that your kid doesn't like my gift. <laughs> and here's the last thing that is uniquely American. Here in the U.S., you can return basically anything to the store. Seriously, you can return anything. I still sweat every time I need to return something. I seriously like walk to the counter with like a very airtight reason as to why you know, I need to return this item. But you guys will just return it without even thinking about it. One time I was at Walmart and the guy in front of me had a blender that he had clearly just used, didn't have the decency to wash had no box or receipt, and they gave him his money back. It's just crazy to me. It's insane. Now, why am I talking about returning stuff at Walmart? Because I think in a weird way, it illustrates the human heart. Because you see, as humans, um, if given the opportunity, we will use things for our benefit and then discard them as soon as we don't need them anymore. Right? 
So sometimes we go to the store, we'll buy a random gadget that we just found that we thought would be cool. And then in that very moment, we were convinced we absolutely needed it. We'll get home, the high of having purchased it will you know, wear out, and then we'll go and return it when, when it's not doing everything we thought it would do. Now, that's great in a capitalistic society, but when it comes to the things of God, that's not great. When it comes to the things of God, that is not how things work. That is not how things should work. And you see, I fear many look at the, at the Christian faith in this way. A lot of people will look at the gospel, they will look at the Christian faith, and they will try it, they will bring it into their lives as a little add-on to make their lives a little more comfortable, a little better, and the second the gospel demands something from them, the second uh, the gospel disrupts their lives, they'll discard it and put it to the side. Church, the gospel does not allow us to do that. If you want Christ in your life, he will demand your everything. If you want Christ in your life, you don't get just to add, you know, Jesus and a little bit of coffee, like those t-shirts that are kind of weird. Um, but whenever you bring Christ into your life, you submit it all under his rule. It is a tragedy, though, that many, even inside the church, will know of the gospel, will have heard the gospel, and yet remain untransformed and unchanged by the gospel. It is a tragedy. But in today's passage, we'll see how Paul praises God for the evidence of God's grace in the life of the Thessalonians. It is a privilege, like I said, for me to, to, to be here and to actually start, you know, your study of the book of Thessalonians. Uh, and, and I love this book. And so I pray that as we look at it, that the Holy Spirit would work in your heart, that the Holy Spirit would bring you. My, my goal for this morning is for the Holy Spirit to bring you assurance and to bring you joy in the fact that you have been chosen and elected by God for His glory and for your joy. But what, about we look, what if we look at first, uh, the first verse of the letter? It says this, it says, Paul Silvanus, who by the way is Silas, just with a fancy name, like me here in the U.S., I'm Christian in Guatemala, I'm Christian, right? Uh, so here we have Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. The first thing I want you guys to see is that the gospel redefines us. The gospel redefines who we are. And in this simple greeting, we see how Paul already assumes that the gospel is transforming the lives of the Thessalonians. Notice this, that Paul's, Paul, Paul doesn't say, to the church in Thessalonica. No, he says, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because church, we are not defined by our geographical location, but we are defined by God himself. The local church has its origin in the heart of God. The life of the church is sustained by God, the Father, and Christ himself. Church, Trinity Community Church did not originate in the heart of Tim Merwin. It originated in the heart of God. Trinity Community Church does not depend on the local elders. Though they're great guys, but it depends on God. And it can only be fruitful as long as it is sustained by God himself. And here Paul tells the Thessalonians, he, he calls them the church, not the church in Thessalonica, the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Paul greets the church with a simple greeting. He says, grace to you and peace. And in this short greeting, we see two words that define the life of the believer. The word grace and the, and the word peace. Just as the life of the believer, the first letter of the Thessalonians is bookended by grace. You will see as you study this, word, this passage, or this, this letter, I'm sorry, that Paul starts with the word grace and he will close the letter with the word grace. And such is the life of the believer. We, our life in faith, our life in Christ is bookended by grace. It started by grace. We see God's grace and the fact that while we were undeserving, he gave us forgiveness. Grace is undeserved forgiveness. Grace is a product of God's love for us and the only means by which we are made right with him. We see God's grace in the past 
because we saw him, we saw how he sent Christ and he sent his only son, he offered his only son so that you and I would be justified and we were forgiven and we became, we went from being his enemies to being his children. But his grace doesn't stop there. Our grace, the grace that Paul is talking about here is an ongoing grace. Because church, God delights in giving you grace. Have you ever thought about that? God is not bothered by you wanting grace. He delights in granting you grace. He delights on you depending on his grace day to day. So please don't ever be shy about asking for grace. His grace wasn't just there at the beginning, but his grace is sustaining you today. And he won't let you go until the day you see him face to face. The grace that Paul is talking about here is not only in the past, it's not only here today, but it will sustain you until the last days. And the future grace, where we will see him face to face and we will be made whole. So that's the first word, grace. And then the second word that defines the life of the believer is the word peace. Because you see, peace is the result of grace. Grace brings about forgiveness, redemption, and restoration. You and I were at odds with God. You know that, right? You and I were not just awkward with God. We didn't just have an awkward relationship with him. Like, you know, that weird neighbor that just doesn't pick up his trash. No, no, no. Our relationship with God was beyond a quarrel. Our relationship with God was outright war. Because you see, when two people, when two kings are battling over a territory, that's not a quarrel. That's war. And you and I, we're at war with God. And yet, because of his grace, we have peace with him today. We went from being his enemies to being his children. We are loved by him, and he delights in us. So grace and peace define the life of the believer. But let's keep going. Let's go to verses 2 and 3. And here I want you to see that the gospel is made evident in the life of a believer through faith, love, and hope. The life of the believer will be transformed by the gospel. And here we see Paul thanking God for the life of the Thessalonians. Let's read verses 2 and 3. It says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. In our Lord Jesus Christ. As you will see throughout the series, the, the letter of the Thessalonians is actually framed by three prayers by Paul. He starts thanking God in prayer, and then he will pray two more times as you go through the letter. But in this short first prayer, Paul is praising God. He is thanking God for the evidences of grace that he sees in the lives of the believer. He sees three specific evidences of grace. He sees the work of faith, the labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. But before we talk about this, let me just say this. In a culture that we live, you know, the culture that we live in that so quickly condemns, disparages, and points out failures, how refreshing would it be for us to be people that are looking for evidences of grace in the life of other believers? How countercultural is it to be intentional with, with our encouragement, to be intentional with looking at where God is at work in the life of our neighbor? Church, how about we resolve to, to, we resolve to be like Paul, to look for God's work in the life of our neighbor, not only here in the church, but also at home, with our wife, with our husbands, with our children? What if we became encouragers like Paul was? Now, let's talk about these three evidences of grace that Paul mentions. He talks about three things. He talks about the work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Faith, love, and hope are known. They're well-known um, virtues in the Christian life. They're actually considered the chief Christian virtues. These three virtues uh, will often go hand-in-hand -hand in Scripture. We'll often find them um, together in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, especially Paul, he loves to talk about love, P, um, <laughs> love, faith, and hope. But the first thing that he, that he points out here is the work of faith in the life of the Thessalonians. Now, what's funny about this, the work of faith, is that the very last sermon I preached was precisely on the fact that we are saved by grace and not by works. 
So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, how about we start by defining faith, and then we'll see how faith works. Faith can be then divided into three parts. The faith that Paul is talking about here, the faith that we, that the saving faith, that, if you will, that we have as believers can be divided into three main parts. Knowledge, belief, and trust. Knowledge is, the, uh, in this context specifically, is knowledge of God's revelation. We have heard the gospel. We have heard what the word of God has to say about God, and we know what it says. And that's the first part of faith. It's followed by belief. Not only do we know of God's revelation, but we believe it to be true. And the last part of faith is trust. Because you can, be, you can know something, you can believe that it's true, and it's still not trust it. But faith is completed by trust. When we, fully, when we are fully confident in what the Bible is telling us, when we put our full confidence, when we put our lives, if you will, in the hands of God, when we believe that if this is not true, then nothing is. And so faith is divided into three parts, knowledge, belief, and trust. Once believers know God's revelation, they believe it in their heart and they put their full confidence in them, in it. This is the faith that will lead us to work. Amen. This is a faith that will fuel our work. Yes. Now, I need you to hear this. We do not work in order to earn God's favor. We work because it has already been granted to us. We work from our faith, not for our faith. We work because the work has already been done. We are not trying to convince God that we ought to be saved. Now, it's worth clarifying that saving faith puts its trust in Christ, not in faith. Let me explain this. Unfortunately, specifically when it comes to the prosperity gospel, many times people will ask you to have faith in faith, basically. And they, will, they don't put it that way, but they will tell you to look at the size of your faith, to look at the strength of your faith in order to be confident of what God is going to do for you. Now, we don't put our faith in our faith. We put our faith in the object of our faith, which, who is Jesus Christ. There is nothing we can do. We cannot in our own hearts produce enough faith that has to be implanted by the holy spirit our faith does not focus on our strength and, and i want you to hear this your faith is not dependent on how big your faith is or how strong it is it's dependent on the object of your faith no matter how weak your faith is and that is jesus christ the faith that I'm talking about is directed towards God. And this, this faith fuels our work. This faith causes us to live a certain way. And it is a way uh, that is outward focusing. It focuses on those outside. Though our faith is directed to work, to, towards God, the work of faith leads us to serve those around us. It overflows in service of our neighbor. And that's what Paul here calls the labor of love. Love is a chief virtue the chief, uh, chief Christian virtue, I'm sorry. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians that the greatest of these is love. And you see, to borrow uh, St. Augustine's language, the gospel reorders our loves. The gospel causes us to love the things that we should love, and it causes us to stop loving the things that we shouldn't love. It causes us to love less the things that we love a little too much, and it causes us to love more the things that maybe we don't love enough. The gospel reorders our loves, the gospel reorients our hearts and it reshapes us. This is what the, what the gospel does in our lives. It calibrates our loves and it reorients our loves to the things that God loves and cares for. This reorienting of our loves is what causes Christians to live for the sake of others. Whenever you love the things that God loves, mainly uh, his people, you will be working for them. This is the love that causes missionaries to leave their comfort and to go into the world and proclaim the gospel. This reorienting of our loves it was causes, is what causes the hearts of believers uh, to care for those who are oppressed, to hear the voice of those who are unheard. This is the love that opens your eyes to the marginalized and causes you to work on their behalf. 
to bring justice where there isn't, to bring healing where there is brokenness. This is the love, or this reorienting of our love. It's what opens our ears to the cries of the unheard. Church, Christian love has legs. Christian love will put us to work. This Christian love, though, cannot be found in us. This is not something that we can just muster from ourselves. This, again, is also implanted in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And that is a result of the gospel. And Paul is static that he sees this taking place in the life of the Thessalonian church. And my prayer is that the same thing could be said about this local church. And to tell you the truth, I think I can confidently say this is already happening from hearing the testimony that I just heard from spending time in prayer with my sister Paula and others. Like, I know that this is what's going on here. And my prayer is that this would just continue to grow. And that the Lord will continue to make us grow in that way. And the third thing that Paul sees in the life of the Thessalonians that encourages them so much is the steadfastness of their hope. The third evidence, like I said, is the steadfastness of their hope. In the next verse, we will be talking about the doctrine of election. But I think Paul already has it in mind as he says this. You see, Christian hope produces steadfastness. Knowing that we are loved by God, by the God of the universe who actually called us and chose us by name. Man, this produces hope. This helps us persevere. Knowing that God makes no mistakes and that he calls us to his kingdom, to be part of the work of the kingdom. This causes us to work and it causes us to persevere when things get hard. You see, biblical hope is not just wishful thinking. I think wishful thinking is what uh, Bobby mentioned a minute ago, that his, his customers said, well, I hope so. Are you going to heaven? I hope so. That doesn't sound very, <laughs> uh, very certain, does it? Yeah. Biblical hope, though, deals with the harsh reality of this broken world. Biblical hope, as Karen Swallow Pryor would say, hope is not the same as oblivion or naivete. Hope requires reckoning with the world as it is with reality. You see, biblical hope looks reality in the eyes and it preaches the gospel to it and it preaches the promises of God that are found in scripture. And that causes steadfastness. That helps us persevere when things get difficult. Which is why, church, it is so important that we serve a God that is not of our own making. Sadly, there are too many people out there who will admittedly say that they believe in God once again, like Bobby just mentioned a minute ago, they will believe in a God, but this God is a God in their own making. This is a God that somehow matches their every desire. This is a God that somehow disagrees, I mean, agrees with them in every single way and does not challenge their lives. Now, that sounds nice, but let me tell you, when the reality of this broken world hits you, as it will, if you are worshiping a God of your own making, he's not going to be enough. He is not going to produce steadfastness in yes. you. Whenever you worship basically a mirror of yourself, that will not be enough to sustain you when life hits you. And if 2020 and 2021 have taught us anything, is the life will hit us hard. But more than that, it has taught us that God is enough. That through our suffering, through our loneliness, through our difficulties, he will remain faithful and it will be he who sustains us. When our trust is in the triune God of the Bible, a God who is sovereign and kind, a God who is patient and abounding in steadfast love, no matter come, what comes our way, we will know that everything will work together for our good and for his glory. This is what brings about perseverance. This, church, is what keeps us going. This is what keeps us working for the sake of the gospel. This hope that produces steadfastness. Remember we said that faith was directed to God. Love was directed to, our, to God first and to our neighbors second. This hope is directed to the future grace that we are promised in Christ. Now let's go to chapter, to verse 4, I'm sorry. Verse 4, to me, is the center of this whole passage. This, this verse is the anchor that will hold us and will give us assurance. 
Verse 4, uh, I want you to see is the doctrine of election. And what I want you to see from it is that the doctrine of election is a gospel anchor of assurance. Verse 4 says this. The first verse says, For we know, brothers, uh, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Look at this. Paul knows that the Thessalonians have been chosen by God. He's bringing up uh, a, a doctrine that is sometimes a little divisive, that's sometimes a little controversial. But what I want you to see here is that Paul is not bringing up election here uh, in order to start a debate. He's using the doctrine of election uh, to, to serve the Thessalonians as an anchor of assurance of their salvation. The doctrine of election actions, uh, anchors, I'm sorry, the believer in the love of God. Without it, we cannot fully understand the love of God. Paul says, we know. And then he says, brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. Don't you want to hear these words? Well, let, let me help you. Please hear these words. Brothers and sisters, loved by God, he has chosen you. If you have given your life to Christ, if you have cried out to Christ and you have placed your trust in his finished work of the cross, he has chosen you. And that should be an anchor of assurance. Unfortunately, though, the doctrine of election, you know, I, I don't know about you, but the doctrine of election makes my little reform heart happy. Okay? But the problem, and you know, I'm going to be real here, with us reformed folks is that we sometimes weaponize theological truths. We sometimes will use truths, you know, the, 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 the doctrines of grace, and we will use them as weapons to bring... Uh, debate, to bring division, to show ourselves different than others that don't know as much as we do. And that's unfortunate because that's not what Paul is doing here. Paul is doing what Paul is doing here. He's trying to give them assurance of who they are. Paul is helping the Thessalonians by telling them, listen, you are chosen by God and this means that you are loved by him. In this short sentence, Paul tells them two huge truths that should floor us, that should blow our minds. First, that we are loved by God. I struggle sometimes to believe my, my kids love me, right? How much more will I struggle to, to believe that God actually loves me? When I look at myself in the mirror, it's sometimes hard. When I look at my history, it's sometimes hard to believe it. And yet here I hear from Paul, from the word of God that I am chosen, and because I am chosen, I am loved by God. Church, we were chosen by God. And the funny thing, though, is that a lot of times when, when, the, when the topic of election is brought up, um, it's usually brought up for debate. Scripture doesn't do that. Scripture never opens it up to discussion. The funny thing is that when election is mentioned in Scripture, it is never up for debate. When the topic of election is mentioned, there are no two sides to it. Now, I think the reason that we make it controversial is because we like to ask the question, why? And then we try to figure out why God elected us. And that's where we get into like all these theological debates. But when the Bible answers the question of why, of the election of God, it is always answered by the love of God. Paul here is making the connection again between God's election and his sovereignty and his love. By reminding us that we were chosen by God, he reminds us that we are loved by him and that nothing can change that. The fact that we were chosen by God brings us so much freedom because it reminds us that we were saved, not because we deserved it, but because he loves us. It reminds us that um, because we didn't earn our salvation with our performance, we cannot lose our salvation based on our performance. It reminds us that if God chose us, it is because he will do the work in us that he started. Church, the doctrine of election should be an anchor of assurance. Because we will see in a moment that Paul, as he's trying to, to point the Thessalonians to assurance, he does not look at their performance. He looks at the power of the gospel. So let's do that. Let's, let's move along with Paul and let's read verse 5. 
Verse 5 says this, it says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you uh, for your sake. So verse 4 tells us, we know that you were chosen by God, right? Paul is saying, we know, brothers loved by God, that you were chosen by him because, because you're nailing this whole thing. Is that what he says? Because you guys are doing great. Because you guys are holier than others. No. Notice that Paul, as, he, as he's trying to explain why he's convinced of their election, he doesn't point at their performance. He points to the power of the gospel, which is interesting. The same Paul who said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and, to the, and, and also to the Greek, is now looking at the power of the gospel itself as the evidence of the election of the Thessalonians. He is basically saying to them, I am sure you are chosen by God because I saw the power of the gospel at work in you. Paul, it may come up a little, it may, it may come up a little arrogant, if you will, to say, you know why I know you're chosen by God? Because I preached the gospel to you. That sounds like he's pointing to himself, but he's not. He's pointing to the work of the gospel in the life of the Thessalonians. Church, we too often look at our own performance as the measure of our salvation. And that is a terrible mistake. If you look at your performance to determine whether you are in Christ or not, that's not going to work out for you very often. Very often, Church, I struggled with this growing up. Kind of like Tim mentioned last week, I grew up in a left-behind kind of church. I thought the rapture was going to happen any time now. Uh, but on top of that, I knew that unless Jesus came back on Sunday between 10 a.m. and maybe 1.30 or 2 p.m. because we're a Latino church, um, I was going to be left behind. I was convinced of that. I cried myself to sleep for years, repenting of the sin I committed earlier that day, crying out to God, please don't leave me if you come tonight. And let me tell you, it was a miserable existence. Paul here is looking for assurance of the salvation of the Thessalonians, not by looking at their performance, not by looking at how well they're doing, but by looking at the gospel that was preached to them. And this very section does two things. It helps us, uh, it helps us uh, grow in our assurance of our salvation, but it also teaches us how we should be preaching the gospel. By the way, at this point, I wish I could say, Bobby, can you please come and tell your testimony again? Because you basically illustrated what I'm about to teach right here. The first thing that Paul says about, you know, about how the gospel was presented to the, to the Thessalonians, he says that it was, that it, it come not only with words. Now notice he didn't say, it didn't come in words. He says it didn't come only in words or in words only. The gospel church, the gospel always comes in words. When I was younger, I used to, I used to uh, teach languages at a school, at a language school. And when I got that job, I decided, you know, I had heard that quote that some people like to, to give to St. Francis of Assisi that says, preach the gospel at all times and use words only when necessary. And I loved it. You know why I loved it? Because I was terrible at sharing the gospel. You know why I loved it? Because I grew up being, feeling guilty that I wasn't recruited. You know, for me, Christianity in youth group in the 90s felt a little bit like, like a multi-level marketing scheme. Like I had to recruit a certain number of people, and if not, I was failing. And so when I heard preach the gospel at all, at all times and use words only when necessary, I was like, that's a perfect loophole. <laughs> right? I'm going to be preaching the gospel at all times. And so when I got this job, literally, that's what I thought. I was like, you know what? I'm going to preach the gospel with the way that I live. I worked there for four years. You know how many times people ask me about my faith in those four years? One time. One time I had a question about my faith. It was a question from a fellow Christian. And her question was like, hey, Christian, are you a Mormon? <laughs> because I see you don't cuss and apparently you don't like coffee either. I, I don't. Um, clearly she missed it every time I, has, I was drinking Coke. Um, but the thing is this. 
I went in convinced that my testimony was going to preach the gospel. It didn't. It didn't. Now, should your life match the gospel you preach? Absolutely. But this is what I want you to hear. The gospel comes with words always. Always. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do good works. Please don't hear that because I just told you that our faith will lead us to good works. But hear this out. The things that the gospel compels you to do are no substitute for words. You will, because of the gospel, we will feed the poor. Because of the gospel, we will be generous. Because of the gospel, we will serve our neighbor. But those are not substitutes of the preaching of the word. In verse 8, you will see that Paul later will say that the word of God sounded forth or rang out of the Thessalonians. Let that be true of us too. Now, I, for, I forget who said it, but I heard someone say that it is our responsibility for the gospel to go from our mouth to the ear of our neighbor. It is the responsibility of the Holy Spirit for it to go from the ear to their heart. And this should give us so much freedom. And the next thing that Paul says is that the gospel came with power. The gospel came to them not only in words, but also in power. And this is a reminder that the word of God is alive and active. The word of God comes with power that does not come from us. A power that we cannot muster on our own. If people's salvation depended on our power, we would be in trouble. Unfortunately, though, this is, how we, this is an assumption we often make. We think that the salvation of others depends on our ability to present the gospel. And that's not true. That's not true. Now, Paul here says that the gospel didn't come just in words, but in power. And once again, my little charismatic heart leaps here thinking of miracles and wonders. Now, I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. Uh, if you read different commentaries, they will say that if he was talking about miracles, he would have used the word powers instead of power. Now, I don't speak Greek, so I, would, I don't know. But here, I believe what Paul is talking about is the power of the gospel unto salvation. Paul saw the power of the gospel at work in the life of the Thessalonians because he saw lives that were transformed. He saw that the idolaters call out on the name of Jesus. He saw sinners rep repent and be transformed. He saw the power of God unto salvation. This power, church, does not come from us. This power is the work of the Holy Spirit and the life of those who hear the gospel. Um, I, I wish my wife could be here. She's not feeling great, so she wasn't able to come today. Uh, I, I love her so much. She's great. I think she's watching, so I love you, babe. But let me tell you something about my wife. I love the woman, but she can keep me humble. One time after I preached, she told me, she said, Hey, Christian, you, do you know how I know that the Holy Spirit is with you when you preach? And I'm like, this is going to be good, right? And I'm, and I'm like getting ready to like hear something amazing. She's like, because you're terrible at announcements. So when you preach, it's clearly the Holy Spirit. I'm like, thank you, I think. But the reality is this, that the, gospel, that the power that comes from our preaching is not our own. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And the third thing that Paul says is that that the, the, the word of the Lord came not only, I mean, that the gospel was preached to them not only in words, but in power and with full conviction. If the power we just talked about is the work of the Spirit and the recipient of the gospel, the conviction Paul is talking about here is the power of the Spirit and the life of the messenger. One of the reasons Paul was so confident on the power of the gospel and the life of the Thessalonians was because he was full of conviction. He wasn't just preaching an idea. He wasn't just preaching an interesting concept or proposition. He was confident in the power of the gospel because he believed it and he had personally experienced it. Oh, that we would be a people of deep conviction. And, and by this, I do not mean that we should be opinionated because for that we have enough Twitter. By this, I mean that we would be people that are people of deep conviction that are unmoved by the culture around us. Oh, that we would have our confidence come not from social media, from memes, from political parties, from TV pundits, but from the work of the Holy Spirit himself and for the word of God as the gospel grips our hearts. Church, all these things I just mentioned come by the power of the Holy Spirit. These are not things we can do on our own. This is all the work of the Spirit in us. 
And church, I'm, I'm running out of time. But I just want to say this. This morning we saw a snapshot of the power of the gospel in the life of the Thessalonians. And this can do a couple of things. It can encourage some. Because it's encouraging to see a church that is thriving. It gives us hope for what the Lord can continue to do in this local church. But I've been at church long enough and I was... I've been a Christian long enough to know that this type of message can also bring discouragement to those that look at the work of the gospel in the life of others and say, I'm not there. I'm not there yet. Some of you may be tempted to look at your life and say, this, this is just not me yet. And let me say this. If that's the case, there is a chance that maybe you're not a Christian but I don't want you to walk away from here condemned. I want you to hear the power of the gospel that is available for you today. Amen. There's also the chance that you are a believer that is unfortunately looking at his performance in order to have assurance of salvation. That's not what the Bible calls us to. So would you then this morning fix your eyes not on your performance, but on the power of the gospel in the life of the believer? And would you ask with me in a moment when we pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to, grow, to help you grow in sanctification? That he would see this very fruit that we see in the life of the Thessalonians in your own heart and life. There are also those of you who may be hearing this for the first time. It may be the first time that you're hearing the good news of the gospel, that God actually loves you, that he wants you to not be his enemy. If that is the case, would you pray with me at the end? Would you cry out to the Lord with me that he would give you conviction, that he would show you the way, and that today you would go home uh, in confidence that you are a child of God? Is it possible might it be possible that God is drawing you to himself today? Even if you've been sitting in these very pews for years, but you have not seen the power of the gospel in your life yet, is it possible that the Lord might be drawing you to himself today? That he wants something better for you? That he wants something greater for you today? Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that your word is alive and living. Thank you that your word is bringing life to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord. Be like Paul that encourages those that, that are around him, Lord. That is looking for evidences of growth and of grace, Lord, in the life of other believers. Father, would you help us be not only like Paul, but also like the Thessalonians, Lord, that, that were thriving in their faith, Father. Would you please help us as a local church and as individuals, Lord, be touched by your spirit today and renewed in our confidence that the he who started the good work in us will bring it to completion. And Father, I pray for those who may be here, Lord, not knowing you, Father, but who are hungry for you now. Would you at this very moment, moment seal their hearts by your Holy Spirit? Would you bring salvation to them and confidence in who they are in you? In the name of your Son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Church, can we thank uh, Christian... Christian, thank you so much for your faithful exposition of God's Word. You have handled rightly the Word of Truth, my friend. And that is something that we are used to. That is something that we expect. And we praise you for that. Thank you for pointing us back uh, to God's grace and peace through the Gospel. Thank you for assuring us of our future hope that can only be found in God's love. Thank you for reminding us of God's love through the gospel in our salvation that anchors our assurance for the unknown future as it relates to our lives. Thank you for encouraging us to preach the gospel with words. That is really 
very instructing and very helpful to hear and to be reminded of that, to be encouraged with that. And thank you for just reminding us that it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to preach the gospel. The hope and the boldness and confidence cannot be found in us, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. So church, would you stand with me? Let's respond, respond in song, and uh, we'll close in a few minutes. Father, we praise you for your word that is alive and active and powerful. Thank you for your gracious reminder through Christian of your grace and peace that you have given us through the gospel. We thank you for the hope of assurance found in your love and your faithfulness and through your act of choosing us before the foundation of this world that we may be found blameless and holy. And we thank you for the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross to make us blameless and holy. So we praise you. Be glorified as we sing to you out of our hearts.
Church, could we thank Christian with an applause? Here's your benediction. It comes out of Matthew 28, and it's on the Great Commission. Beginning in verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is our confidence in making disciples of Jesus. He's with us. Father, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would grant us the passion, the hunger, and the desire to share our faith in Christ Jesus with those who are lost and without hope in this world. And we pray for those who don't know you, that they would come to saving faith. This day is the day of salvation. We praise you for your word that reminds us, instructs us, and encourages us. Grant us the strength and the power through your Holy Spirit. Father, I ask that you be with your church, that you would protect your church, that you would heal the sick and provide for those who are in need. And give hope and peace to those who are discouraged. Be with us now as we go from this place. I pray that you would be glorified in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, you are dismissed if you would like prayer. Uh, the elders will be here. Christian will be here. We'd love to pray with you. God bless you.